selling your business is somewhat miserable. It is months of negotiation, back and forth, legal fees, ticky tacky, redlining of docs and terms and term sheets and then the actual docs to final. It is so much to take on conventionally. Only to watch on the other side, all of this work go for naught if the new business trashes the business that you built. And enter Tiny Capital. Tiny set out to become the buyer that every seller wish existed. Fair, fast, and founder-friendly. If you're looking for a new home for your internet biz, they will respond in a day or two, make an offer in seven days, and close a straightforward deal in about 30 days. They have done what I have never heard of. They've done it, and now they've acquired several businesses this way with the founders raving about the experience on the other side versus, well, when my business was bought by Airbnb, I don't know if I would have been raving about it on the other side to give the below the line version uh, for listeners here, which is the point of this podcast. Go to tinycapital.com to find out more about what they offer and how quickly they will reply, respond, give an offer and close. It is, like I said, it is the acquisition machine that many founders around the world wish existed. And now it does. Go to tinycapital.com to learn more. Another one of our badass sponsors is Vanta. Is your sales team unable to close deals because you don't have a SOC 2 report? A SOC to me, as some people call it? Or do you have a SOC 2 report that is being managed by a team of employees, several of them spending countless hours on it every year? Vanta has built connected software that makes it easy to both get and renew your SOC 2. The easiest way to get one and renew it year after year. With Vanta's continuously monitoring solution, you avoid hosting auditors on site, sending loose leaf paper back and forth, taking hundreds and hundreds of screenshots to prove that you're compliant. None of that with Vanta. Vanta partners with over two dozen AICPA accredited audit firms who all are trained to file your SOC 2 report directly inside of Vanta at a fraction of the cost that you might be used to. Hundreds of companies like Lattice, Clubhouse, Bolt, which is a portfolio company of mine that raves about using Vanta, are leveraging their services today to streamline compliance and focus on building their businesses. Below the line listeners can redeem $1,000 off. That's $1,000 off at vanta.com slash BTL. Go to vanta.com slash BTL. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash BTL to redeem your $1,000 off coupon and see how much better it is than the old way of doing things. Below the Line is also brought to you by, I hate saying that because I know you're just going to go right into fast forward uh, for the episode when I say brought to you by. So instead, I'm going to say Below the Line has something else that it wants you to hear about. And that is a little project of mine called Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Do you want more creativity, more flow, more energy, and less stress? Go to magicmind.co to get the two ounce shot that contains 12 magical ingredients that are scientifically designed to improve your productivity. Along with CEOs, doctors, musicians, even Navy SEALs, I take it every day and have been for about six years after a trip to the ER from drinking 
way too much coffee day to day. It is the single most important part of my morning ritual to get more done and to stress less. Listeners know that I go to pretty extreme lengths to talk about the science behind sleep, diet, exercise, alternatives to coffee, nootropics, adaptogens, anti-inflammatories, whatever it is. I go to pretty extreme lengths to talk about the science behind it. And you can find the peer-reviewed research on the ingredients of Magic Mind on the site to learn more. Go to magicmind.co, that's magicmind.co, and enter the promo code BTL to get 15% off and try it for yourself. So there you go. And if you dig below the line, we would love a review. It's how podcast platforms rank and suggest podcasts. So every review matters. It takes three seconds. You don't even have to write anything anymore. So if you're one of the fine folks that have already left a review, thank you so much. We read every single one, the good and the bad, but we especially read the five-star ones. But if you haven't left a review, go into, as the YouTubers say, go into the app store and smash that subscribe button and also smash the review stars or whatever you need to smash and uh, leave us a review, good or bad. We appreciate every single one. Today's episode is with the British poet, author, and Zen master, Henry Shookman. Henry is able to touch on so many different topics with a brilliant articulation that which you would expect from a poet. And we cover so many different topics in our conversation today, everything from the one single experience concept, which he talks about in his memoir, One Blade of Grass, which is a phenomenal read for listeners. We also touch on the phases of creativity. And we also go in in depth around his decades-long battle with low-grade depression, sometimes higher-grade, and sometimes just in the background, and all of his different methods of self-medication, finally finding something that, that worked and helped him overcome it. We touch on all of these things and more in today's episode. I'm excited for, for you to hear it. So without further ado, let's get into it with Henry Schuchman. This is Below the Line. We are live. Henry, good morning. Good morning to you, James. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, please. I'm, I'm honored to have you on the podcast. I listened to the episode you did with Kevin Rose and really loved it. Well, before we get into it, where, where are you right now? Well, right now I'm sitting in my sort of little office study at home in Santa Fe. This is a room where I do a lot of sitting, actually, meditation. And, you know, some amount of writing and giving talks now during COVID in our house, which is, you know, kind of up on a, on a little bit of a hill above downtown Santa Fe. Uh, it's a beautiful city. It really is. And we had actually just last night, we had our first snowfall. We had like, like five or six inches. Ah, and, that's you know, great. <laughs> it's kind of amazing to look outside and see the outside table. And the cars, you know, completely sort of like molded, beautiful white sculptures. It's just gorgeous. As a poet and writer and, and spiritual teacher, what comes to mind when you, I imagine some type of metaphorical uh, imagery comes to mind or when you see the seasons changing? I know it brings out so many different feelings within me, but for you, does anything, 
Do you feel it in your bones when you're when you're seeing the seasons change? Does it uh, make a shift, good or bad? I know that uh, you know, some people it, it can be with seasonal affective disorder. It can be um, can be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, it does. I think what I get a hit of is some taste of childhood. Like it seems to take me back to the way the first snow would feel when I was a kid or, you know, and if it's spring or that, that first taste of a little longer light in the, in the sky of, you know, you know, summer's going to be coming. I sort of get a, just a hit of how, how the, the tender beauty of that, that I used to feel as a kid. And I, I mean, I still find, you know, it's very just like just walking out this morning, you know, it's just this sort of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's the beauty. And I guess the seasons are such a reminder of, you know, everything changes, everything moves on, nothing's permanent. And, and there's a, there's a sweet, there's a kind of joyful sorrow in that, a sorrowful joy. It's poignant. It's poignant and it's beautiful. And so the edge of appreciation is sharpened just a little bit, you know. There is a, yeah, sorrowful joyness or um, joyful sorrowness. There's something, yeah, there's something in nostalgia in, in general is here, even in LA, the last four nights or so, it's, it's felt like fall. And my my wife's been baking uh, pumpkin bread, and so that adds to it. Um, just the smell in the house the last few days, and uh, we have a three year old, and she just always wants to bake. So my wife has to come up with things to bake, and and they've been baking that in the last few days, and and there's something sorrowful and, and joyful at the same time with nostalgia of the seasons changing when we're young and uh, when i was young so there that's a that's a beautiful way of putting it yeah i'm glad you feel that too i mean it's like when we're kids you know of course there can be traumas and difficulties of many kinds in childhood of course but there's also this openness that we have as kids where we're we're more sensitive and we're more alive to our surroundings and our experiences and we we taste them more vividly and so anything that you know anything that revives that in us? I think somehow is a good is good. Yeah, I I have always have family members that that struggle with seasonal affective disorder, and and when the seasons change, it's it's always a time of uncertainty, extreme uncertainty of whether it will impact their 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 mood and their uh, perspective. For me, I don't know why my wiring is is the way it is, but I. I I really feel like I'm most I'm my most productive self in the the fall and winter months, and I think it's because if I've ever been pushed to articulate, I think it's because as as the outside optionality gets gets turned off, that constraint kind of puts me in a um, metaphorical prone productive position by a little fire. Uh, it's never literal like that, but it is. It is metaphorically, I just feel like, okay, that constraint, that whole world is is turned off. Now focus inward. And it's um that tends to be qu- really creative for me. And I 
I don't know why I have that that wiring or that that type of maybe it's just a learned a learned familiarity of okay this is the a few months where I can get a lot of things done and not feel FOMO of of going outside everybody's kind of hunkering down yeah that's that's beautiful to hear it actually reminds me of the you know the great english poet milton who wrote paradise lost he said exactly the same thing he did all his he didn't even try to work in summer he waited really? for, for autumn or the fall. Yeah, he felt fall, autumn and winter, fall and winter were the time to really go deep in his creative endeavors, just like you. <laughs> there's, something, there's something there, you know. I mean, maybe that's a, like a, another way of using the seasonal, that seasonal switch. I was just thinking about it because in England, I remember once having this friend, Australian friend, uh, way back, long ago and, and my younger adult who was living in England and he was a surfer from Australia and I, I kind of like what are you doing in England you know it's rainy all the time and back then nobody surfed in England and, until more recently now a lot of people do but people hadn't really discovered the joys of neoprene you know back in the early 90s not yet and he said to me I remember this year he'd been he was in England for maybe 18 months or something you know, and I said, so why, you know, how can you, how can you hack it? You know, endless rain. And, and he said, it's so good for the inward journey is what he said. And maybe, you know, that's another way of, of taking this inward turning. You know, if you don't, if you can steer clear of the reefs and shoals of, of, of SAD or seasonal affective disorder, you know, it can be so productive. Yeah, I think it. This is uh, hypnotically wired in my programming from, I imagine, my parents. But, but I, well, I don't know because it's my uh, siblings. Some of them don't don't have this uh, programming, but to to at least the extent that I do of of just things can happen for you or to you, and it's and it's our choice. It is our choice to uh, in which way to perceive them, and so I I would look at the the outside. Growing up in Texas, it actually gets quite cold. It's the worst of both. It's super hot and quite cold. But growing up in Texas during the winter, I was like, okay, this is going to be a really fun, just um, inside productive window, uh, whether it's music or writing or even just the family all being forced inside. And, and so I, I always felt like it was happening for me. And then in my yeah, later years would, would use it as a, as, as a window of, of productivity for, for any number of, of creative outlets with, with you and, and finding yourself in, in New Mexico, we can, we could talk about that for forever. And, uh, and that's interesting that Milton, you know, it is it, when you do zoom out. It, all you, all you need to create is a few, few masterpieces in a, in a, seventy, eighty year lifespan. If you're lucky to live that long, and and your life is, is deemed extremely productive, and and so maybe there is some wisdom in taking off for half the year and then going deep for the other half. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, actually. The value of space and rest. And we don't see the value of those as much as 
as we perhaps should. We, we definitely don't. Right. The time off can be every bit as important as the time on. Amen. Yeah. The, the, it's such a, um, I think it's, it might tie back to the con- 20th century convention of a career and, and that coming back from uh, evolving from a production and manufacturing schedule. Maybe the always on, constantly going hum is a, it's kind of an industrial complex. It's certainly not. I remember uh, just to divert uh, once more, and then we'll bring it back to what I want to ask you about New Mexico. But I remember in, in Yuval Harari's book, I believe it was Sapiens, where he talks about one of the the interesting hypotheses he has in the, the whole history of, of Homo sapiens is that about 10,000 years ago, it was a grave mistake to go into agrarian an agrarian way of life from the hunter-gatherer way of life. And, and that, that mistake 10,000 years ago was made for an assumed stability that would come with, with planting crops and harvesting crops. But what it also came with was 14-hour workdays instead of a hunter-gatherer society working about three to four hours a day. And, you know, we 100,000, 800,000 years of going from three to four hours a day to 14 and and that stability. Then we, I think it, it extended, uh, listeners can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on this, but his hypothesis extended into saying that that then within about a generation of additional children that then lived and needing to feed those mouths, we became addicted to that uh, agrarian approach to life and, and need for stable production of, of food. And then we became addicted and 10,000 years later, each generation is still kind of addicted to that um, agrarian lifestyle. And now kind of a, maybe a manufacturing influenced convention of always on working. Yes, that's so true. Yeah, I remember reading that. And the, the, the population carrying capacity of agrarian life was that much greater. So then you have more population and then you, you all the more need to be farming to feed it. And it becomes a feedback loop like that. I mean, I was just remembering actually how in the late 18th century in England, you know, the very early industrial revolution, some people considered it a kind of abomination that these factories had gaslighting through the night, like the desecration of night, you know, that they would keep working through the night because they could. Ah, it is so unnatural now that we, and I, I have a feeling this conversation is going to be replete with, uh, with interesting observations, knowing that I'm, I'm speaking with a, a poet, writer, and and uh, Zen teacher, but yeah, it's so unnatural um, just to continuously move. I mean, there's nothing in nature that does that, and we obviously have day and night. But even nature has the ebbs and flows throughout the year. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so so if we're sort of looking at, I mean, the way we don't want to sort of inhibit our our potential, but how do we do that? In, the, in a healthy, wholesome way, you know, that's, you know what I mean? Like rather than just sort of not, not the sort of forced march, you know, 
but more the, you know, the deeper kind of exploration and wondering and, and learning as we go. And yeah, kind of vibe of just being more exploratory rather than linear, knowing where we're heading and we've got to get there as quickly as possible. That kind of mindset. Right. Well, for this, for, and one of the things I love about podcasts, it's my favorite medium, is that you can go long form. So feel free to go long form. I implore you to go long form with, with <laughs> any questions and topics that, that come up. And, and I want to touch on that uh, a little bit later in the episode as well. Just the, the I've heard you speak uh, before about just the, the biology of the, and the physiolo- physiology of, of, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system and, and the real biological roots to rest. And, and so I want to touch on that a little bit later, but I want to go back to, so you're in New Mexico. You don't have the accent of someone from New Mexico growing up in a state right next door. How did you find yourself in New Mexico, Henry? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, I, um, I mean, I could do like short, medium or long version. Long, but... <laughs> long version. <laughs> Please. Okay. I mean, okay. So basically, let me just think. Somehow, in my early life, you know, especially probably as a kind of young teen, I got this idea that it was cool to travel and to wonder. It's partly, I think, because I met a. I was very lucky, really, that I, by accident, befriended an a kind of old school tramp in England, a guy called Speedy, and an old school tramp. Yeah, tramp. You know, like a, like a vagabond. Sort of a, yeah, sort of ho- well, hobo type. Hobo. There was mm-hmm. there'd been a long. I don't know whether you could call it a tradition, but a phenomenon, probably since you know the late nineteenth century, maybe earlier, of 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 guys who just wandered in England, and they might they might stop for a few months and work on a farm or something like that. But they were adept at living basically outside. And this guy Speedy was of that old school. And he, I learned a lot from him in a very short space of time because he, he just lived outside. And so the, just the phenomenon of meeting somebody who, it made me realize how much most of us lived with, you know, not just cars, but houses. You know, this guy, you know, his kitchen, his bedroom, his living room were all one and he could fit it in a backpack on his back. And he, he really lived like that. And in winter he'd go, I mean, not the English winters tend, you know, not to be that, that severe actually, but, you know, he'd go south to the South coast and sometimes be in a shelter and, you know, find different places to put up through the winter and then springtime he'd reappear in in the valley where we lived when i was a kid you know it's really like a this is like you know a life that now when i it, when i talk about it or think about it now it seems like this is just another era but it was not really that long ago this is this is the 1970s anyway he you know he taught me little bits and pieces about how to how to you know, how to catch, uh, you know, a rabbit, you know, to cook kind of thing. I mean, I wouldn't do that now, but as a teenager, it was kind of, kind of thrilling to learn that sort of thing. And, 
where to sleep and how to keep dry and and keep your your fire starter dry and stuff. And also, um, and did, it, how often would you interact with them or see them? And and how did the friendship bud? Yeah, it started actually with um, one one of these summers when he was in our valley. His he had a couple of little dogs, and one was. I mean, he actually used them for to help him hunt, you know. And one of them, as it were, befriended our our dog, and they kind of cavorted all summer long. And they had she had puppies, and my mum said, you know, if there's a if there are puppies, bring us one. So one night at the tail end of summer, you know, there's the knock on the door, and Speed is out there, and he. He opens up his big coat and pulls out this little puppy, incredibly sweet little puppy, and um, that be- that was really the beginning of uh, my getting to know him. Because then I started to go wandering the valley and other valleys and in our neighborhood with friends. We'd you know put on a backpack and just go out and sleep sleep out as we call it, or sleep rough, just sleep outside and be gone for several days. And we'd run into Speedy and he would just sit and talk to us and, you know, tell us about his life. And, and sometimes he would, he would actually, he did something like meditation. He would sit still. He said it was really important to learn to sit still. He said, just, you've got to just stop still, he said, you know, and you'll learn a lot if you do. And, you know, we sort of tried a little bit and it was, it seemed kind of cool to have this whole other way of, of being, a whole other way of experiencing life than basically everybody else I knew. We, we live here, and it makes me think of, uh, we live here in, in LA near the, the beach, and there's a person that I've gotten to know on the beach that is one perspective, as you could just say, homeless, but his name's Frank, and he sits, I see him almost probably every other day. And he sits on the bench, completely self-sufficient. I've tried to offer him uh, a crepe the other day, tried to give him DoorDash or Uber. Someone delivered an extra meal. And so I was trying to give him that. And and every time he's like, no, no, I'm really okay. I'm full. I'm full. I, I've had too much to eat. And um, you know, very unexpected answers for someone that uh, that is, he's got two little uh, bags, shopping bags of things with him that he walks around with. And, but He's just, he looks extremely, I, I can't assume he's at peace, but man, if he does not look at peace, sitting on the bench, looking at the ocean all day, every day, not staring at a phone, not grasping, you know, literally or metaphorically for, for anything. He's just uh, sitting and, and looking out the ocean and, and I'm sure there are ways that, that the community can can help him and 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 folks like him, but at the same time, there is something, there's something he's doing that looks quite right versus the people speeding by on on scooters and cars and running furiously, working out, and he's sitting there peacefully. He always has a smile, so he he certainly has mastered stillness. I probably have seen him. 50 times just sitting straight sitting up straight just looking out in the ocean so uh, there's there's somewhat of a, a parallel experience i've i've had here in los angeles 
Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, the the thing was, I suppose, as as a young guy, for me and, and some of my friends as well, was getting this sense that there was a alternate path in life to the one that you know seemed like the whole of our society was caught up in. There's really a different path, and it was about being more present in in, in Maybe it was about various things, but that was one of them. Just being more present. And because compared with other people like our teachers and our, you know, even, you know, family members, parents, whatever. And he had a quality of being present. You know, that he wasn't, he wasn't already leaning into the next thing, rushing toward the next thing. He had time. And he, he also had this beautiful vision that he said, you know, the landscape, the, the land of England had these, what he called old roads. He said, you couldn't see them unless you'd been walking a lot. And then you could start to detect an old road, you know, that would lead you all the way to the coast of Wales or something like that, you know. And it was somehow an exciting prospect that were, that there were sort of hidden paths that only somebody who knew the land well would start to see. And for me, that became a kind of a metaphor for life, that actually if, if you went too fast, you skated over the surface and you didn't see the beautiful paths that, that life could offer you. you know, And so by which you'd sort of, you'd live more, you'd live more fully, you'd live a deeper life. In fact, you know, actually, my book, One Blade of Grass, I, it has the subtitle, Finding the Old Road of the Heart. And does that come from Speedy? Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Because so, it's like there's, you know, we get inklings, I think. We get inklings of kind of, could you call it a better way to live? I don't know. Seems that way to me. We get inklings of it. Um, but do we, do we, pick them up? Do we respond to them or do we brush them aside? And I think they're probably always coming. And we can so easily even get a little hit, but just still turn away back to the momentum, the ordinary momentum that we plugged into and just can so easily get carried along by. Or do we, you know, or do we actually take the moment to sort of turn aside from that rushing current and and actually appreciate, wow, you know, I'm alive. It's so easy not to notice I'm alive. It seems to me... Uh, you're telling me. You know, humans are so beautiful. The, this is the way I'm feeling it at the moment. You know, one of the beautiful things about having a, a path of practice is that it keeps evolving. It never It never really stays the same. It keeps changing, and and I. How do you? I, well, how do you? How do you mean? Well, I mean, I mean, for example, you know, as you know, I'm sort of deep into meditation, and have been. I think I thank Speedy for it, really, but I have been for, you know, since my mid twenties, uh, or maybe a little earlier, depending how I count. But and I'm now in my late fifties, so quite a while, and it just doesn't stay the same, you know. Again and again, there's some new discovery. It's like, oh, wow, this is what it's all about. 
And two weeks later, another new discovery. No, this is what it's all about. It just goes on and on like that. Wow, even 25 years in, it's, it's a continually evolving, more than 25, almost yeah. you know, 35 years in, it's just a continually evolving practice. Yeah, and ever more so. You know, the, the, the sort of, the unfolding is sort of seems to happen quicker, more beautiful. More beautiful, more, 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 more beautiful. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> kind fantastic. And, and just to pursue that a little bit further, even when you graduate beyond uh, a specific school and, and become a teacher, you're saying it just continues to evolve, continues to change. Yes, this kind of path is about endless exponential learning. So even if you're a so called teacher, you yourself are only a teacher to the extent that you're a learner. You just never stop learning. And I think humans should be called, you know, instead of homo sapiens, you know, wise man or whatever that is, a wise person, it should be learning person. I think we're creatures that, that are alive by learning. You know, I think that's what our great gift is, our great capacity is to be open to learning. And that's what we sort of really, in a way, need to work to not close down. It, it, it brings up a question that I was, I was really intrigued. I, I wanted to ask you, the, I was thinking about this morning, I wanted to ask about if you had any doubts about your authority as a Zen teacher. Do you, <laughs> do you ever wake up, you ever just think, how am I leading this, this school of, of thought, this, these students? And ever have those personal doubts? The short answer is yes, but the the slightly expanded, important, I think, answer to note is that, you know, first of all, I didn't make it up. I've been trained in a method for humans to essentially let go of who they think they are and for that to be a safe and healthy thing to do so that they can open up to boundless possibilities and discover basically more and more and more about who they really are. You could also say, discover less and less and less because the more we're letting go of who and what we think we are, the more we're in fact opening up to participating in, in this whole universe. I mean, maybe that's a bit of a mouthful that needs some unpacking, no. but... No, but please, un- please unpack it. It's, it's... <laughs> but so you can see... But so, you know, right there, first of all, we don't teach anything. It's not like, here's the, here's the syllabus, here's the material, and we got to impart it to you. Not at all. The person, anybody who, who comes into serious, deep meditation practice, you know, they are their own object of study kind of thing. They are the potential. They are the wonder. They are the marvel. And the teacher's job is simply to be at best, a kind of guide in making a context so they can let go more easily and know it's safe. So the whole package is just like a, it's just like a, a content, a context in which the student, and that includes me, can let go safely and feel encouraged to let go of what, what we think we know, especially about who we think we are. So therefore, the teaching 
is much more like being a coach at a gym, you know, just happens to be a gym about consciousness rather than physiology. But it's kind of like that. And so, you know, the person does all the work, they have to do the reps, they have to do, you know, they have to do everything in the gym. And the coach is merely there to say, hey, try this, hey, try that. And by the way, did you know this is actually possible? You know, and so they're encouraged and supported. You see what I mean? It's like I do, yeah. It, it's not imparting something. It's it's helping somebody on to to the limited extent we can, helping somebody on their own journey of discovery. Does that subtle but powerful difference between, I guess, what what many would conventionally think of as a teacher? the the master imparting is that does that have something to do with an east west difference in in teaching or in learning that's a really interesting question i don't know that i know enough to answer it but i but i can say this that if this is not my idea i've you know read this in various places that the the deep western spiritual narrative is about redemption Meaning we're, you know, we're fucked up people. We have to be saved from outside. An outside force and agency has to save us. That's the Western narrative, deep narrative of spirituality. The Eastern deep narrative is we're originally perfect, whole, complete, just the boundless well-being, but it's obscured by you know, encrustations by sort of dirt, depending on the metaphor, you know, it's got, it's got obscured. And our work is simply to clear away, you know, the encrustations, the, the dust. So we've already got it. We don't need outside agency. So I don't know whether this relates to the question, you know, like the Western and certainly old, old school Western idea of education is there's a whole, I've got a bucket of facts that I've got to pour into you. You know, I remember some Dickens novel starts like that with the school teachers, just, you know, the kids are sort of idiotic, empty vessel that I just have to fill with my knowledge. That kind of, so that's, you know, that's, that's really a. Yeah. I mean, it, it does bring out in thinking about these foundational it's interesting i mean philosophy and psychology and therapy they're all uh, religion they're all they all seem to be underpinned by a, a commonality of of trying to trying to avoid self sabotage like just in knowing that okay i myself can be my worst enemy so through philosophy or religion or therapy it's trying to avoid that and and it's interesting that that you say the foundational spiritual path in the West being one of redemption and agency coming from outside required outside agency versus the East where it is the agency within you and discovering it is that is in my very I have no idea what what I'm talking about with with these concepts so please correct me where I'm misguided. But yeah, it does seem from a very cursory view, it's the West is, you know, heaven is outside of you and pursue it. And that that just 
bleeds into our entire psyche of pursuing that which is outside of us, you know, ambition, career, moving west, manifest destiny, whatever it is, you know, conquering new new lands. But um, yes, in yes, the exactly. East, in the east, it seems more of a instead of a pursuit, it's a discovery. Yes, exactly. It's discovery of what's within, and this is the, you know, it brings. I mean, you, you, yeah, that that thing of what's outside is going to be is what I'm after. But no, it's like that. The you know the deep reality that we find in Zen is basically the non-dual, the non-separate. That that I am not separate from anything. You know, is what we can come to discover. Which is, I mean, and I know that might, might sound like a huge stretch to suddenly say that on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> you know? But actually, there's a level on which this is just, you know, this can be a matter of personal experience, you know, and it's it's a mind-blowing thing to find. And I don't know whether I could just, shall I shift to just a little moment no. of... Well, I actually, I'll come, I, I want to come back to, to that. Uh, and you talk about it in your book, I, I think it's chapter four about the single experience. So I want to talk about that, but I did... I did uh, cut you off as you were. I would love to go back to how you found yourself in New Mexico, and you started with <laughs> Speedy at thirteen, and 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 yeah, please go back to that. I think that chronology might be a great structure uh, for us to touch on a handful of things. Yeah, I'm sorry, I really veered off there. No, so, I did. Um, I I diverted you. <laughs> well, I, maybe we both did, but you know, I I was um, basically I got this sort of uh, you know this notion that. It was very cool to be a wanderer. In fact, I started reading these Chinese poets when I was in my teens, uh, Du Fu and Li Po and stuff, who were, they, they, the beautiful little poems from this is from like the eighth, ninth centuries in China. Very beautiful, simple, clear, rich in images, these little poems often about wandering. You know, they're, They've often just arrived in some new place or they're just about to leave somewhere saying farewell to a dear friend and then wandering off through the gorges over the mountains. And this life of kind of wandering and writing to me was just like, that's what I've got to do. So I had the good fortune actually to have a, you know, so-called gap year when I was 18, 19, during which I went to work far away in in south america and so i worked for a while and then i backpacked for a while in fact i wrote my first book then ah oh, gap years i'm gonna make my kids do a gap year it's uh it, it sounds like such a beautiful thing i've thought about that before but you saying this i think just consecrated it <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me it was everything because that that you know i had had this dual longing to wonder and to write and to sort of you know, basically, I wanted to just write appreciations of the world, you know, with kind of what I wanted to do in my young fantasy. And sure enough, actually, by the time I was 19, you know, and a half, I guess, I had actually written a book. It was very, you know, thrilling to find that I'd managed to do that. And, and so that was while I was in South America. And Man, I'm trying to just keep on track with New Mexico. How do I get to New Mexico? No, no, no. It can just be basically that. That can be 20 minutes from now, 30 minutes from now. I want, I want all of these touchstones, um, okay. and and the more the merrier because I think it's uh, that's the like I said, that's the great thing about podcasts. They can be long form. So yeah, you can okay. touch on all of these 
interim spots before the here and now uh, this morning okay. in New Mexico. <laughs> okay, so I'm still aiming for New Mexico, but I, I think I just have to mention that I had this this really important sort of event for me personally happened while I was in South America. I was um, I'd actually finished. I felt I'd finished writing my book. Actually, I'd only finished the first draft and there's a whole long journey to come, but I didn't know that. I was just so happy to have done it. And one, one afternoon, I was essentially out of nowhere. I was just overtaken by an incredible, I guess, spiritual experience or awakening experience. I was totally sober. I wasn't, I didn't take drugs. I wasn't interested really in in, actually, I wasn't really interested in spirituality at all. But I suddenly had out of the blue this moment of, of finding that I was part of the whole universe. I just wasn't separate and never had been. And where were you? Well, right, right at the time, I was actually on a beach in the late afternoon and I was, I was gazing at the, at the late light on the water and all of a sudden it just it just wasn't outside of me and i wasn't outside of it i was no longer looking at something it was i mean this sort of thing is i know unless you've had a taste of it, it it's probably sort of a sounds maybe abstract and weird and but when it happens to one it's extremely personal and vivid and and you know i when I, I suddenly just was you know it's a cliche but i was one with everything i was i would there was just one and you weren't fat. on anything there's no there's no <laughs> chemically induced experience it was just sitting there at no. 19 on the beach looking out and, and you weren't even and you said you weren't even spiritual before no, no, and I even after actually I wasn't. I just, I just knew I'd seen what it what it was like was, it, it was astounding, and unbelievably beautiful, and it resolved everything, and I felt my life was now fulfilled, and that I I could die that night, and it would have been a perfect life. That sounds. That reminds me of. Uh... It's Swami Rama Tirtha in India that had a similar experience at 17 or something, just in his living room. And and no no prior spiritual experiences or even curiosities. And it just happened. That's that's fascinating. These these these, these things do happen. And um, you know, the what happens next is another matter because some people sort of ease into a spiritual path, you know, that unfolds from it or whatever. And, and other people struggle more. And I was in the latter category. And after a few weeks of utterly blissful living where I felt like I weighed nothing and all I really wanted to do was try to help. And wow, so, wait, tell, tell me more. So you felt this, so you had that, that moment on the beach and then it stayed with you for a few weeks. And what, like, what was four days later when you woke up? What did it feel like? Yeah, well, it had, I mean, the, 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 you know, the real sort of powerful vividness of the immediate experience that sort of passed and left this amazing kind of afterglow where 
I, it was like I'd been turned inside out or something. And I, I, I was, I just weighed nothing and was transparent and I could just feel like, I felt like I could sort of feel suffering very keenly and wanted to help wherever I felt it. And, uh, it's, but it wasn't, it wasn't the, it wasn't, I mean, when, cause in the thick of the actual experience, it was like, it was like, you know, in a, in a way, everything sort of vanished and there was just one field of reality that where everything was present, but it sort of wasn't made of anything. It was kind of like that. It was, so that, that, that passed, you know, and then I kind of knew I was on a beach again kind of thing, but man, it was different. I was, it was, I weighed nothing and I just felt this, ah, this sort of burning love in my chest, like a flame, like a, almost like a physical flame of love just pouring, pouring, pouring through me. That was just wonderful. And that, that lasted for uh, quite a while, but in that sort of state I was just describing, but then, then I went home actually. And, and I hit, I hit, uh, I really hit a wall because I mean, I know it sounded from all that speedy stuff, like I'd had a kind of idyllic, happy childhood. I mean, in some ways it was very, very blessed childhood in terms of like educational opportunity. Like both my parents were professors actually at Oxford university. So, you know, I had a very privileged educational sort of background, you know, with learning Greek and Latin and French and Russian and German and stuff as a kid, you know, and reading a lot of great literature and all of that. And, but actually at the same time, I had a really severe eczema through much of my childhood, which is, it's a skin, it's a skin affliction. And I had it from the age of six months into my, even into my late twenties, early thirties, but progressively less and less severely from pretty much from my kind of late teens on. But it, it was a very uh, debilitating. You, yeah, you, you write about this. Do you mind? It's not just a little rash that people might think of with eczema. Yours was knuckles bleeding uh, all over the body. Yeah, I was in hospital at times with it. And actually, you know, when I was, I was talking about this time abroad, this gap year time, during that time, it, it, it left, it vanished. And that was one of the things that made that time so remarkably, intensely sort of precious for me was that I was free of eczema. And I went home and at the end of, it wasn't actually a year, it was more like six months. I went home at the end of the, that time and, you know, literally within an hour, I could feel my skin start to itch again. And it came back and, and I had a kind of, I think I had a minor, breakdown when I, when I got home. And I say minor because I was in, you know, utter despair actually for, for quite a while, but I was sort of semi-functional. I managed to be in college and do just enough to not flunk out, you know, but I was a totally broken person. I, I, I think when I look back on it, I, I realized essentially I came back home in a state of totally open heart. And in that condition, 
I came face to face with the difficulties of of the childhood I'd had, which is partly that eczema thing, but also a very difficult parental divorce, which had a long aftermath of difficulty. In a, in a, an unhappy, I live with my 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 I and my two my brother and sister. We live with our mum. It was very very difficult situation for her for various reasons. And you know, I think my brother and I felt very sort of we we stepped into that kind of role of trying to be responsible for our mum's well-being you know and emotional well-being and i think a young boy might naturally do that but in some ways it's it's not all that healthy and, and it was complex you know but the 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 result was that when i came home blown open you know sort of 360 degrees wide open I came face to face somehow with all the trouble of these, you know, nearly two decades of childhood. And, and I just had no resources to deal with the intensity of emotion. And I didn't know where it was coming from. And I, I couldn't understand why all of a sudden I was feeling so overwhelmed by grief and despair, you know. How, o- how often do you think about that that minor breakdown in that moment in life? Well, these days I don't think about it that often, actually. I mean, I, I can, you know, I did a, it started to, I really started to, it drove me, in the end, it drove me onto a really great healing journey, you know, which began actually with meditation. Yeah, tell me more. Well, I, when, when I was like, I, 24 or 25, I started sitting regularly. I did it TM style, you know, transcendental meditation. And I was, I was pretty, I was really pretty miserable. So I threw myself into the meditation. I think it can be in meditation practice, a little bit of desperation can be a good thing because it may just be the spur that makes us do it really diligently. I, I pinned everything on it. You know, it's like, you know, man, maybe this will help me. So I just, I, I did, they're supposed to do 20 minutes twice a day, and I don't think I ever missed it. And, and it started to help. And, and very soon, actually, as it helped, kind of weirdly good things started to happen. Like my, the book I'd written, you know, it, it found a publisher, which it, you know, hadn't done until then. I'd been sort of almost too incapacitated to really do anything about it. But then I started to, you know, I worked on it and I got it out to an agent and so on. And, you know, that happened. And, and then I also um, realized maybe I need some therapy, you know, and I, I was able to start doing therapy. And before this, what was, what was life like during those five years before this and in between the experience at 19? Yeah, that, that I prefer not to think about. <laughs> right, uh, and yeah. I, I hate I hate to to push, but what for for listeners? Just um, I always hear my my friend Lenny in the back of my uh, in the back of my mind, who's a listener, always says, "Ask for specifics." Ask. For, <laughs> okay. So, okay. so <laughs> do you mind building out just what that that you know those five years before therapy, before things started to click, what that was like? Yeah. Okay, I'll try to. I mean, okay, so like from the point of view of having had this, you know, rather privileged educational 
background, I went to Cambridge University. I was a, kind of a bit of a scholar. You know, I, I, I had um, been a scholar, at, uh, you know, had a kind of a pre- prestigious scholarship when I was a, a teenager at school. And, and I was kind of serious about academics. So I got into Cambridge and I, I arrived there and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't work. I couldn't study. I, I would, you know, sit in front of a textbook and my mind would just kind of slide off the page. I just, and so I had a very kind tutor and I was supposed to be writing these essays and just time after time I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And it was, it was difficult to get out of bed in the morning. And I, I actually started, uh, uh, I mean, to be perfectly frank, I kept a bottle of vodka in my room and would slug from it and listen to music and tune out. And, and I, I, and then I would find myself having a conversation with, with, you know, with a, with, with a tutor or somebody else. And I'd suddenly find I was, I was crying, you know, and I felt utterly ashamed of myself. And I tried to connect with my parents now and then, which in those days in England, it meant going into a phone box and pushing in the coins and, you know, having a couple of minutes of brief conversation. And I, I was so ashamed actually of my collapsed psychology. I was so happy while I'd been away that I'd managed to become a happy person who was well with healthy skin. It didn't have to be ashamed of his hands or his face or his legs. Or, you know, I was so happy to have become whole and healthy. And I watched all of that just collapse when I was home. And there was not only the, you know, the, the collapse in itself, but also the deep, deep shame of being a broken person. I remember once my tutor saying, hey, maybe you should try some counseling. And I was like the last thing I wanted to hear because, you know, I just, I had a tremendous shame about not being healthy in mind and body. And so I kind of just stumbled through college. I, I managed to, to get the degree and I had friends, you know, I, had a, I guess what happened was I got into low level drug taking, actually, you know, basically hash that, you know, people would, I mean, a lot of people that I seem to know would smoke very weak joints of hash that, that you rolled up with tobacco, you know, so you get sort of a mild buzz. You didn't get stoned like you would off good grass, you know. It was mild, much milder. I'd sort of sit around smoking hash like that with friends and right. kind of self-medication. Self-medication, you know, doing just enough work, sometimes getting inspired and working harder on an essay or something. And and did it trying to think how to ask it, were you able to think about the, the predicament as if you had depression? Were you a, or or were you able to use those words? Could you let yourself use those words? Did people use those words um, back then as, as much as they do now, thankfully? Right, right. That's a great question. And I again, I was afraid that I might have depression and didn't want to think about it. 
because of this deep shame. You see what I mean? It was like I I, it's, I, I totally know what you when in two thousand one when my sister, my older sister by three years, she took her her life when uh, when I was fifteen and and my family told me she had mono for the three months leading up to up to that uh, until she attempted to take her life about a week before about four days before and then was in the hospital and and so it 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 made no it didn't make any sense anymore to to talk about it as if it was mono so they told me four days before but there was so much shame even within our close immediate family that my parents told me that it was it was mono so i i know it uh yeah yeah i know it intimately to to feel like there's so much stigma that you're protecting those around you, you're protecting your child, you're protecting yourself by trying not to use that, not to use that real language. Oh man, you know, I'm so sorry to hear about that. I heard oh, no, that in your podcast, you know. It's it's so, I can talk about it openly and, and pretty um, objectively at, at, at this point. But thank you. Well, it seems like it's been a formative experience for you, which is the best thing that can happen with suffering. You know, oh, it's it is. You know that uh, biologically, I think uh, there's the concept of eustress and distress, and the healthy form of of eustress or stress called eustress is you know that's the that's the stress that gets you uh, that wakes you up in the morning, and I think uh, extreme stress. Uh, way past distress, <laughs> extreme stress wakes you up in the universe. So I I couldn't agree more that it's um, it can be a profoundly um, a positive experience for some to have have these types of stress uh, stressors in in life. It sounds like it was for you at uh, twenty five. Yes. Well, I think the thing is when the shame switches to vulnerability, that's when it's okay. Because, you know, as shame, it's really, it really locks everything down and healing can't really happen until there's honesty, you know? And so, and for there to be honesty, there's got to be vulnerability. It's got to, it's got to be okay to be vulnerable. It's got to be okay to be broken, you know, and to be broken as a person, broken as a family system, you know, broken in all the ways that we we want to hide right oh yeah you, you say minor breakdown and it was uh yeah i could i uh have had some breakdowns and and so it's i but i also i totally i i think this doesn't happen for everyone but i i do believe in the concept of post-traumatic growth and there is and for some it, it, there are is immense growth that comes on the the other side of these undesigned uh, life events exactly exactly well i'm sorry to hear you have breakdowns too i mean but again they can be such a great opportunity for growth and you know it's funny the um i mean just to flip it back to that revelatory moment that you know it sounds like i had such a troubled psyche and i think i did really but how come i had that moment of sort of all all healing universal love or whatever it was you know and 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 actually in those few years that we've just been focusing in on thank you very much by the way for being willing to listen to all this 
are you kidding? This is, uh, this, I can already tell this is going to be, um, my favorite conversation of the week, um, because of <laughs> the depth in which you're sharing, but also the depth in which uh, you obviously have reflected on. I, I think that there's, yeah, I think that many people may have had this type of experience in their life, but have buried it under impractical, delusional, you know, just must have been under intense stress or it was, that was just a vacation. You know, it, it, it's, I think there, there are people that have had these experiences, but don't reflect on them, much less share them openly. So I am loving every minute of this. <laughs> well, thank you. But, you know, I think that there's, during those years when I was so, so sort of in despair, that very experience of all healing wellness and universal belonging and being one part of the very fabric of the universe, that became a kind of goad to me. And a sort of, because it was like, well, how the hell could I feel that way then? And look at me now, kind of thing. You know, I, I had that discovery and I made that discovery or whatever that it fell on me. I was blessed by it. And what a mess I am now. You know, it became like a, just another thing to sort of scourge myself with kind of thing, you know. But once the, once the recognition started to dawn that I could at least do something about my condition. And that first thing was meditating. By the way, because, you know, I was sort of, like I said, I was sort of semi-functional. I mean, at that point, I was actually enrolled in a postgraduate degree. I was doing a, a PhD. I, I mean, I hadn't really, I was just in the early stages of research, you know, on Homer. But, you know, it was like kind of doing that, but inside just this, seething turmoil of 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 of, 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 un of unhappiness of different forms you know but that but then recognizing at some point man i actually could do something and that would be to meditate and to take it seriously and to get you know did a a train the training program that they had and started to do that and then some point in the you know while you know in that i guess the year first year after starting to meditate, being able to reflect on that moment on the beach as a possibility, not as just something I'd, I'd failed to live up to, but as something that actually hold, held a little glimmer of promise, you know, and, and it wasn't like I got to get back there. It was more like that showed me something. So instead of it being, you know, a deficit on my side that I'd been through that and then kind of lost it, instead it was like a door opened and I saw something then that is the most real thing I'd ever seen. And it's still, it's still real, you know, and it took a little while before, you know, I actually got on really on a path that clearly sort of knew about that kind of experience and i knew it knew and so because i didn't know that i didn't know that that was that what i'd experienced then was i knew it wasn't madness because 
it was so wonderful and it was it was so helpful and it was you know so real and i i, I knew it i'd seen that was the most real experience i'd had in my life i knew this force of truth came with it you know like this is the truth of your life henry it was like that you know and that's beautiful you know but i <laughs> so i knew that but i didn't know that anybody else knew about it i didn't know what to do about it i didn't i had no idea that it was in fact you know an experience that was understood in some strange corners of the world you know and it was only when i even when i was doing tm actually i didn't get that they knew about it and I'm, i don't know whether they did i would presume they ought to as an offshoot of hindu you know advaita kind of thinking but it wasn't really brought home because they really advertised tm as well they call it a life tool for the busy that was the tagline in those days and this is like the i guess the mid 80s late 80s a life tool for the busy and so it was all about you know relax a bit and you know you'll be more productive kind of thing right it's like uh, hatha yoga today where the the yoga in the studios of like do it so that you'll have a calm mind to accomplish more yes uh, exactly quite, a, quite exactly. a bastardization of of where it started oh man i know and where actually there's that have you read that great book american vader no i it's, haven't i strongly recommend it i think it's it called philip yeah it's about the sort of history of vedic thought in america it's a oh, fabulous that's right up my alley I'll, I'll i've jotted it down american vader why, why does it come up because he talks about um, all the different iterations of Vedic thought as they've w- come in waves into the US, one of them being TM and another being, yeah, Hatha Yoga. And what a, what a, what a sort of strange version of sort of true yoga or yogic training and discipline and meditation. Yeah, I, I, ha- I had a guest on here who's a Vedanta uh, teacher two weeks ago, Joseph Emmett, and in one of the conversations he and I have had before, I don't, I, I don't think we touched on in the, in the episode, but he was telling me that, that the yoga that we, that we see and talk about here in the U S spiritually or, or mind space, you know, wise, that's, that's about 10% of what yoga means in India. And there is the physical yoga, the Hatha yoga, but, and there is a, a, a place for that, but yoga or uh, being a yogi is, is in, in yoga union, is about 10x richer, deeper, bigger, uh, more dimensional than, you know, the, the mat on the ground and downward dog. And, <laughs> and, and he was saying that the reason that the American viewpoint and the Western viewpoint of yoga is, is downward dog or warrior one is because it is one, it, it translated, it's the only one that would translate through TV in the 60s and the oh, 70s. And so it's kind of like this foreign uh, import uh, of another culture. It's kind of like Swedish massage where it's, 
<laughs> you go to Sweden, they're like, well, uh, what the hell are you talking about? Um, and, and you go to, you know, New York, a New York spa in 1993. And, and it's, it is this commercialized version of this, this thing that has very vague roots in the land it comes from. And so, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was interesting to hear him talk about that. To, to your point of just Americans, the American importation of these things. Yeah, I mean, if I could just um, also make a, a defense of it would be that, honestly, in my biography, Hatha Yoga has been so important because of just getting into the body and calming the body and finding how the mind can settle down by that focus on the body and that mindfulness of body, as we might call it, is, is very, you know, is really with a ragged nervous system, we need something like that. And also, you know, honestly, I think it's a gateway. It's a gateway to meditation for many. Yeah. No, it's a defense fully, fully absorbed. I think there is, there is, it, it can be uh, quite honestly, one of the, especially with the YouTube video, maybe one of the, uh, along with breath work or breath meditation, the cheapest form of therapy out there. I, I didn't mean to diminish it fully. It is certainly a, a unique angle on it that, that uh, we have here, especially in, in LA and uh, <laughs> versus its, its beginnings. Yes, absolutely. And what it means, I mean, yeah, it's, it's much more like a meditation training in, you know, and real deep, deep. Cause I mean, what, maybe one way we could sort of frame a lot of what we're talking about is like, if we're looking at spiritual paths and spiritual practice, and of course, you know, in terms of my own experience, that would mostly mean meditation. Spiritual practice is like a, a path of meditation, not just using meditation now and then when we feel like it, like, for example, at the end of a yoga class, but actually committing to it on a daily basis and having some guidance and you know, maybe having some community that we're involved with to some extent, you know, all of that is, it's, you know, it's got, you could say it's got different functions or different uses, all of which are legitimate. You know, one would be healing in the broad sense of, you know, psychological healing. And of course, it can be neurological and physiological. And, and that's a whole, world of meditation practice and probably all the modern mindfulness that we hear about and I, I'm involved in as well is mostly in that kind of area. But there's this whole other side of a spiritual practice, a meditation practice, which is, I think, better called exploration, where we can actually engage with the deep quest of a lifetime which is finding out more deeply, more intimately who and what we are. And that's not a, that's not a finite thing. It's not like, oh, right, now I've got the answer. Because, you know, although we can have, so for example, what happened to me on, on that beach when I was 19 was a flash of, you know, a, a, a door opening and suddenly, hey, you're not what you think you are. Take a look at this. You know, and it's a boundlessness that is actually at the very heart of my own experience that I don't normally see. What you know? what are we? 
Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, I honestly think it's better to ask that question than to answer it. Because, well, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're busy. I think we're busy a lot of the time needing to know who we are. And, that, you know, you can ask the question, well, who am I? And that could be another iteration of needing to know who I am. But why do I need to know? What if the, the real task is releasing my certainty? The, the kind of contraction I make around who I think I am and want to stay being that knowable entity. What is it like to, you know, maybe finger by finger just release my hold on what I am so sure I am or want to be so sure I am? What happens if that hold opens? And for a moment, you know, what is it like just to not know, rather than I'm going to latch onto an answer, another answer, maybe a bigger, better answer, but another answer. But how about I'm just going to not know? You know, just to feel how that is in the body, to go from a grip that we may not even know we're doing to opening the grip, you know, and just that sort of opening can be more valuable than, you know, grasping another answer, even if it is a bigger, better one. You know what I mean? So sort of thing. Does that, you know, because you asked, so who are we, you know? And I would want to first just suggest that we we enter this possibility of not knowing and just kind of see if we can live even just a moment with that uncertainty and that openness. It's quite meditative just to hear your voice. And Do you get there by asking the question or by letting go of the question? Yeah, even, I mean, that's a great question. <laughs> Even that, I would say, try both and see. Because there's, there's, what if there's no fixed answer? You know, even there, I mean, yeah, sure, there are traditions where you ask, you ask, who am I? You know, and the, we find that in Vedanta and Hinduism. Who am I? The great question, self-inquiry. We find it in Zen. It's one of the first koans. Koans are these little baffling kind of riddle like enigmas that zen has but they're all they're all clear when when we open up our our sense of who we are when we open it up do you mind giving uh, listeners an example of a koan yeah sure 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 well i mean you know there's the really famous one is goes like this you know the sound of two hands clapping but what is the sound of one hand that, that's the original formulation of that kind. What is the sound of one hand? Now, it's not a riddle that's supposed to have a kind of a clever answer, not at all. It's, an, it's actually a, it's an invitation to open up 
in a way we don't know that we can open up. And it's so it's, it's rather like asking the question, who am I actually? Tell, tell me more Tell and, and expound on that for listeners of, of the purpose and utilization of koans and, and Zen Buddhism. I mean, they are, they're little sort of messengers from the world of the non-dual, from the world of no separation, from the world where we are not separate from anything. They're messengers of this level of experience, or you could say level of consciousness, where our sense of being a separate self has gone. So when we taste that, koans are clear. And when, when we're not tasting that, which frankly for most of us is most, the vast majority of the time, Koans are baffling. But they, what they can do is somehow, by just sitting with them in meditation, adding them, kind of gently adding them to meditation, they have a weird sort of proven track record for triggering profound experiences of oneness, of what Buddhism calls emptiness, which is maybe we could call it boundlessness, it's where there's nothing solid anymore, that we realize that all this solid world around us is just kind of transparent, you know, and we ourselves, we have this sense of being a, an entity within, somewhere within our, you know, skin bag, as Buddhism calls it, you know, somewhere within this container that's my body, I, there's me. But actually when we when we look for it, you know, we might find a little sense of, of contraction somewhere and say, oh, that's me. I can feel where I am. But actually, the more we study it and investigate it, we find that actually there isn't something there the way we thought there was. So koans, again, I don't want to be sort of too weirdly abstract because they're not, you know, they're what they're inviting is a very vivid, intimate experience of this moment, you know? When you say it's, it's uh, similar to asking the question of who am I or what am I, is, in a sense, are you saying that it's the question of what is the sound of one hand? And I, th- and I think that it gets phrased as what is the sound of one hand clapping, but you're saying original phrasing is what is the sound of one hand? When you say that those are similar and and that there can be this this profound experience that can happen that the these can trigger is it is it somewhere in the area code of of just you especially in the world we live in it's just like you hear riddle get ready to solve it and to assess your status and self uh worth whether you can solve a riddle or not get ready you hear it and then it's just go 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 try to solve it and in in some ways the koan is not some ways but in a very uh determined way or a deliberate way it is unsolvable so that you wrestle with it wrestle with it and then you just like you were saying you let you try on letting go of this is unsolvable is that 
Is that what you mean when you say it's similar to the question of what am I? Yeah, actually, that was very well put, James. You, I really, you really, you really hit it there. I, I my, my dad. I remember t- him t- teaching us or telling us koans when we were, when we were young. But, um, but I'm certainly not. I'm not super familiar with, with uh, Zen Buddhism. But I, I remember grappling with these and, um, and wrestling with these, oscillating between this is stupid and I. Th- think I have an answer. Okay, no, this is stupid. Um, <laughs> this isn't a riddle at all. And then really only maybe in the last few years, seeing the wisdom and in, in, uh, in the difference from a, a conventional riddle. Yes. The, the, I mean, they're really nothing like a riddle in a sense, but the fact that the mind may try to solve them, you know, is it can be part of the process where Basically, the mind exhausts itself on this enigma, on this impossibility. You know, it just doesn't make sense. So the mind exhausts itself. We become, in the positive kind of way, defeated. In a good kind of way, we surrender and give up. And then something that we don't know and can't reach ourselves can show itself to us, which is actually a deeper level of consciousness, a deeper register of consciousness that our ordinary consciousness cannot kind of burrow its way to. The ordinary consciousness has to kind of release and then it shows itself. So, I mean, I think I'm kind of repeating what you said. It was very well put. This is speaking of exploration. This is fun to explore with you. Not every day do we get to talk about the underlying purpose, structure, and leverage that something like a koan can provide to the mind. The I, I, going back to you, you mentioning TM, kind of having a I forget how you how you put it, but it was something kind of in the direction of it. It didn't sit quite quite right with you in this journey. What what was it about it that didn't sit quite right with you? Well, you know, in a certain way, it did. It was very healing and helpful. And it, if I hadn't been doing that, I probably wouldn't have gone into therapy. And you know, but but it didn't. As I kind of got better, you know, so to speak, as I kind of recovered some more wholeness of mind and heart, I started to you know remember that that moment I'd had on the beach and think, well, wait a minute, what was that? And it was around then that I, I stumbled into Zen. I was, I was doing my third book at the time, actually. I had, after the, you know, I think I kind of just touched on that, you know, I wrote that first book and when it, when it was published, I was invited and sort of encouraged to do a second one and given an advance for it by a publisher and and, um, you know, suddenly I kind of had a life, you know, and, and, and an income. It was all very exciting. And I was sort of doing what I wanted to do, which was travel and write. And so I went off to my second book was in the Caribbean because, man, it's, I don't want to overload listeners, but another strand in my life was that I'd been a musician since quite young. And, and I'd fallen in with this crew of West Indian musicians in London. And um, actually, my second book was about playing trombone in bands in the Caribbean. 
And yeah, I was that was that was a great experience. And after that, I was working on a third book, which was about the British writer D. H. Lawrence and his time in New Mexico. So, and so finally, these weren't spiritual at all. These this is these were books about uh, just topics that you wanted to dive into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, they were kind of experiential. They were sort of narratives, and so. I'd done two, and then and I was I was being bankrolled by these great publishers uh, uh, in London and New York. I was very I was very fortunate, you know. So there was this third book brought me out to New Mexico. That was actually just bringing us around to that. That's how come I first came to New Mexico. And by then I was in my late twenties, and I I got um, introduced to Zen in New Mexico by a writer friend. She read a passage of this great Japanese early Zen monk called Dogen. Yeah, what, what, what was it about Dogen that, uh, that hooked you? Yeah. And, and, and maybe tell listeners a bit about Dogen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Dogen was this, um, I guess, important uh, figure in the history of Zen, uh, 13th century Japanese monk, master, writer, poet, and um, this friend of mine just kind of read me a bit of Dogen that didn't make any sense. It was about mountains walking. And I heard it and I thought, What's, what, what on earth is this about? You know, But I couldn't, I couldn't forget it. And it just kind of lodged itself in my mind for you know, a day or two or something. And then one... one Do you um, remember what the, the quote was? Yeah, it was... It was um, do not doubt that mountains walk, even though mountains walking is not like human walking. Do not doubt that mountains walk. Something like that, you know. And and I I I, I thought essentially, you know, it's, it sounded like nonsense. I mean, it's kind of a bit like a co-op. And actually, though, I was washing a mug at a sink a couple of days later. And this, this strange line came to mind. And I just suddenly had this feeling. It wasn't really a, you know, a thought. It was just a kind of vibe that he was talking about what I'd experienced on the beach. I don't know. I couldn't really explain why, but there was this sense that he was seeing what I'd seen then, where Kind of everything was present, everything was possible, the whole universe was right there. You know, in some way, I thought, hey, wait, if he was seeing that same experience, he could say something like this. I mean, I, you know, it wasn't really a, like a sequential, rational thought. It was just a sense and that I just had this feeling, this conviction actually grew that he knew what had happened to me on the beach. I just and, and how how old were you at this point? I was twenty eight, I think, or you know, maybe twenty nine. It was like ten years later. So yeah, for that decade, were you kind of just in and out of, of wondering if that was real, or or maybe you, it sounds like you knew it was real, but wondering if anyone else had experienced something like that, or or, or looking yeah. every once in a while to see if someone had. Well, something like that, but for the most part, you know, probably most of that time, I kind of had just put it in the back of my mind somewhere and thinking, 
there was no follow-up that one could do on it, you know, and then occasionally wondering if there might be. And then when I got this hit from Zen, it was like, maybe there really is follow-up, you know, because maybe there are other people have met that, have found that, maybe other people have even devoted their lives to it, was the sense that suddenly I got. And so actually the very next day I went and got trained in how to do Zen meditation. And, you know, I, I guess I was kind of a little uneasy about, you know, was it okay to leave TM and go to this other kind of meditation? But I did. And I, I kind of, I feel in a way I was right that Zen really did know about the kind of experience I'd had. It really did. And in fact, in time, I came to see that that's what koans are all expressing in their own way. And, and, and is, is something like what I'd experienced on the beach. They're coming out of that wild world. And what I also discovered was that there's more, there's further that, that what I'd tasted on the beach had seemed like ultimate reality somehow, you know, and, but actually there was a path that could take you further and further. And there was more to discover and more to let go of. And, you know, and, and so I, I actually found my way to the path that I, I've been following. Now, you know, I personally, although I've been mostly, you know, on the Zen path and, you know, I've had really amazing, really awesome teachers. Um, which has been such a big part of it, actually, to have somebody kind of helping, encouraging, supporting, and kind of holding one to account. You know, that's, that's just been an incredible gift, you know, because most of us probably think of meditation as a, a thing that we do ourselves. And of course it is. But if you have this additional piece of having a guide, especially from one of these deep traditions, you know, the sitting becomes an incredible vehicle for a great, great journey. And it's, it moves from being maintenance of my well-being to something much greater, you know, but I think it, to have, to have that teacher guide in one's life is, is an important element in in it becoming that so you know really that was kind of i mean that wasn't the end of the story because it took me a while to find a teacher i could trust i was a very sort of suspicious young man still didn't really feel i could trust a a kind of authority figure you know or, i i yeah, i can sympathize with that i don't think i can trust i had three older older brothers and and so i I think I um, my psyche. If, if Freud is right and that your psyche is for, formed by age six, I think I had enough experiences with tyrannical leadership by the time of age six that I, yeah, I, I think that's why I'm an entrepreneur. It's why I'm always creating things outside of systems because it's, um, yeah, it's hardwired to to not trust authority for me. Yes, yes, I can, I can relate to that. But you know, when I found my first Zen teacher that I really could trust, uh, he was just such a kind, wise, 
gentle, deep, clear human being. And where was this? Actually, it was, I was back in my hometown, Oxford, England at the time. I had a fellowship in, as a poet uh, at Oxford Brooks University. And while there, I was, I was going to the local Zen center and he was a new teacher there. And he was a retired lawyer, he retired young, and he ran a charity for severely disabled people. And he just didn't have a, he didn't have a kind of an ambitious bone in his body. You know, he wasn't doing Zen to be a great teacher. He wasn't doing it to have any renown. He was just doing it because he loved it so much. And he had been so helped by it himself. And he had been asked by his teachers to share it to anybody who wanted. And it was a, you know, relatively, said a small to medium sized kind of group. It was modest and humble and sweet. And it was just a whole, I think prior to that, I had been to various different Zen centers and, and meditation centers of different kinds, actually. And, you know, there was, I suppose they tended to be a bit more renowned. The places, you know, I tended to go to places I, you kind of heard about. And so there was more, well, I, I don't know really if it would be right to say there was more ego in the air kind of thing, but there was somehow there was more sense of a sort of imbalance of power or something, or something that I was never quite comfortable with. But in this humble little place with this amazing, deep, gentle teacher, I just felt so fortunate that somebody was willing to give their time, you know, to guide people gently. And, you know, it's, I, think, I think there are wonderful people in the spiritual realm. Well, it's, and to, to bring it to, or what just briefly comes to mind is the, um, there's so much power in the capital M mythology, not like, you know, fake mythology, but the, the narrative uh, and capital M mythology of Christianity of this uh, God becomes man and man is washing our feet and God is washing our feet. That, that humility is, it's uh, the last image we would have of a earthly king, but that's why it's so powerful because it's, that's what, that's what we want as a ultimate image of God, of, of, of being on the level with us or many of us want. There's something profound in that humility. I've never had a, a guru or, or, or a spiritual teacher of, of this type of sort, but I could imagine a temple, an you know, austere temple with these levels and iconography and these massive statues can feel separated from the person entering for the first time and feel separate from our life experience versus someone in a humble abode taking care of uh, the, the disabled. Yes, exactly. And I mean, it's, it's beautiful that you bring up humility like that, because I think that's personally, I feel it's kind of the cornerstone of, of our spirituality as humans is humility. And it, with humility, we find compassion and we find gratitude welling up. But if humility is not there, 
it's harder for gratitude to well up and it's harder for compassion to well up. Some sense of, um, you know, and, and again, you know, right, right earlier on, you were asking about being a teacher. And, you know, for me, it's, it is this sense of like, well, I'm only, I'm only a teacher because my teachers have, you know, sanctioned me to and asked me to. And I'm not trying to do anything. I'm only trying to pass on what I've received. You know what I mean? It's not like, um, I think I've got any great, great stuff to offer. You know, I'm just like, a, I'm just trying to pass on this amazing way of helping humans. I mean, essentially, you know, my view these days is that humans are just so beautiful and such incredible creatures. And, and it's, it's tragic that we suffer so much and that we create so much suffering. And, um, you know, there's a certain amount of suffering that may be inevitable, but there's a whole lot more that isn't. And why we can't tap into our intrinsic well-being, it's, it is a kind of tragedy. But at the same time, it's so great that we can actually learn to. It's just that for most of us, it's a bit of a journey to get there. And in related to what we were talking about before, it's that that suffering can be that catalyst to that uh, exploration. Exactly. And then we can end up being so grateful for our suffering. I'm, I'm sure a similar way to you would see it, that, to the way you would see it, that because of the suffering, we went on the journey and found what there was to be found. This is a podcast for, uh, for creators. So it is, uh, we haven't, we have not even really um, explicitly broached the topic of, of creators or, or creating or entrepreneurship. But I, I know that uh, the word travel, the etymology uh, traverse is to struggle. And in any journey of any decent amount of travel is, is a struggle and entrepreneurship is certainly, it is certainly much more of a struggle and challenge daily than it is the liberation that so many people think it can be. And so I, I thought would be when I set out to, to go be my own boss. Oh God, how misguided <laughs> that was. Talk about the, the, the oneness of, of experience, and, and maybe that's a good segue to, to us talking about that in your book, One Blade of Grass. <laughs> there is no slicing and separating and saying good day, bad day. Every day has a great day. It's three good things happen, two bad things happen. That's a great day for an entrepreneur. Um, but it also, you just, you know, the next day it might be the reverse or five bad things and no good things. And so it's it's just the struggle and triumph, the trial and error, the successes, the defeats. They just, it's like one big ass burrito if it all rolled into each other. There is no <laughs> separating um, the, 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 the journey from the struggles and the success. It doesn't even matter. Like if you see someone that's, uh, that is, I don't know, in the press for selling their company, you go and chat with them and they're like, yeah, uh, below the line version, we have all of these milestones now that we need to hit in the next 18 months. I've got bosses now. And it, it's just, it's never just one thing or the other. It's all 
happening all at the same time. Uh, so this this episode is is very relevant uh, to that. But but I did want to ask about um, in your book you talk about the single experience, and you've talked about your own um, experience at nineteen with this. But um, what what do you mean by the single experience in your book? You know, at some point in my Zen training, um, sort of had various other you know experiential moments, kind of. Uh, Kin to what had happened on the beach, but then finally had something different where really it was like um, everything, everything really disappeared in a, in a most weird and marvelous way. And almost like it sort of was born again, kind of. It was a, it was really, a, I write about it in the book the best I can. It's not very easy to, it's not very easy to describe the actual experience because it's really almost like a kind of just sort of almost like a kind of life as we know it ending and then a reboot. And, and when um, was this? This was like, um, well, actually it was about, it's kind of like 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. And uh, it was a crucial point. It was a, it was a turning point for me because up until then I'd still been sort of, you know, in this, somewhat of a meditative sort of seesaw, like between being, you know, really peaceful and content and sort of energized and, and then falling back into more of a contracted state and being, you know, more troubled and, you know, kind of back and forth. And then even though, you know, all the time very much feeling in better shape because I was on a, on a real path and with great help, and also my, you know, my career as a writer was kind of cruising along. But then this, this weird thing happened and everything was, it was as if everything was just kind of born out of nothing, you know, from then on. It was so beautiful. It's, and it's in a way that that experience hasn't left. It's, it's sort of not vivid. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm a kind of perfectly normal guy, you know, but I can still feel it. And that was really the turning point. And that was when... Uh, was it a moment like on the beach where it was just a moment on a you know, Wednesday <laughs> afternoon? Or was it kind of yeah. build, building up? And tell, yeah, yeah, tell me more. Yeah, I mean, I, I, had been, I was well into this koan training, which is a, a, a kind of a long process at the time. And I was actually on a retreat and with my, one of my teachers. And it was a moment. It was an instant. I suppose, in a way, I just have to say it was it was more thorough than. And this was in your mid forties. Yeah, yeah, and it really, it was a. I guess I, I was actually forty five. Yeah, it was, it was, um, it was a kind of pivot point for. For for life, in a way that I, I mean, I would have said that about that beach experience and a couple of others that happened in the course of my Zen training. But, but th this was different. This was different. And I think in a way I felt that, I mean, I don't want to uh, sound like I think I've got it all or anything, but it was, I felt, well, maybe this is, this is more like what the whole thing's about is that they really can, we, we can be resolved as human beings in a way that we don't kind of flip back from. There's some 
I think it's a common thing in the spiritual path that we'll kind of kind of get somewhere and then we feel we're kind of flopping back and forth between being clearer and less clear, you know. For for listeners, they might be doing the math and, and saying, okay, that was maybe 15 years of practice before <laughs> that moment. Yeah. Um, it's, I, it can be intimidating to, to hear that if, if this um, defeat of suffering is the, is the goal. Um, it, one, it's an, an incredibly inspiring to, to hear that, um, that, that you, you feel like you can't have this type of cross, this, this Rub- Rubicon of a before and after, but it, it also sounds intimidating. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I would say that, first of all, you know, a lot of people actually don't have, I, I think I had some probably more kind of mild mental health issues than many might have that, that were, that needed to be worked through. So a lot of people might get much happier with, you know, much less practice and much, you know, it's not like, and also I was, I was hell bent on this real deep quest and you don't have to be. You know, for many, it's, you know, they're, they're not after that. They just, they are after just a bit more well-being. And, um, do you, do you, do you still feel, um, you've talked about, uh, um, previous interviews, depression and dysthymia, which is a kind of like mild depression. Um, do you still feel those? Do you still feel the, do you still, uh, is the eczema completely gone? Interested in kind of just that, that emotional, state that you're in now versus 20 years ago yeah no to be honest it it is very different now i mean i i I mean i i I don't know that i'd never get depressed again i don't know for sure but i imagine that if i ever did i'd handle it way better and it wouldn't freak me out and i'd you know kind of shrug my shoulders say well what's wrong with a little depression you know it's been really different you know it really has and eczema it's it's uh it's been a thing of the past you know for a long time now and i find that a little bit interesting how come meditation helped so much with that and i think it of course it would all come down to the nervous system and becoming because one of the factors in in a condition like eczema is is stress of various kinds and i had way more of that than i realized and so regular meditation can surely help with that. Do you mind telling listeners a little about the biophysiology of, of how meditation helps with that? In the in a nutshell, I suppose it's getting, you know, the nervous system has these two sides, the sympathetic system, which which activates us, and in extreme it triggers the fight or flight response. And then the parasympathetic system, which dials us down and and promotes rest and digest so for many of us they're not really in balance we're not regularly tasting a stable calm nervous system you know we may be i mean for example to be you know anxious would be that would be a overactivated nervous system and then to be depressed, that might be a hypo-activated nervous system. You know, so to have a well-toned nervous system, 
is something that meditation practice seems to be pretty reliably good at promoting. You know, like just a kind of more supple, you know, well-toned, I think is a way to put it. You see what I mean? Right, like a muscle. Yeah, it's sort of in better shape. Well, the I could spend hours with you. I know that uh, we're we're pressed for time here. Are there any other moments we haven't made to uh, uh, to touch on before we get to New Mexico here today this morning? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, James, I'm really very grateful to you for being willing to spend all this time with me. Oh no, I think uh, no the honor's all mine, and I think our listeners. Uh, this is the the kind of stuff that that I know many of them really enjoy. I mean, this is the so much of our time when creating. Well, a hundred percent of the time we're in our heads. But so much uh, of of the conversations out there just have nothing to do with what happens in between the ears and that inner side of of the journey. And so this is this has been great to hear about your own inner journey with uh, with being a creator. We didn't didn't touch on all of the the poetry and and works that you've you've written in the past. I know that uh, One Blade of Grass is a great book for for listeners to go go check out. But um, yeah, are there are, have we have we missed anything um, uh, that that we should mention between uh, twelve years ago and 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 now? <laughs> well, maybe I'd just say like um, you know, a little bit a little bit beyond that experience that I was I was asked to start teaching Zen and I've been teaching Zen and mindfulness, mostly at this place in New Mexico, the Mountain Cloud Zen Center, a really beautiful place and all of it's online right now in COVID. You know, we so anybody's free to join any of our sits, retreats, intro classes. It's all at mountaincloud.org. Mountain Cloud. And is mountain spelled uh, all the way out? Mountain Cloud. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, 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 well, the last question I wanted to ask you, and this is one of my favorites to ask guests, is what is something that you think a lot about, but you rarely ever get a chance to discuss? Either it just doesn't come up professionally or, or in classes or or socially, something that takes up a, a good bit of mind share for you, though? <laughs> well, it would be my wife, Claire, who, <laughs> who um, you know, we, we live together with we're joint parents of our two boys who are now college age. And, you know, to have that kind of close partnership of deep, deep friendship and love, you know, it's like, here we are, I'm talking about all this meditation stuff, but as if that were a source, the one and only source of well-being. And, you know, so clearly that's, that's really not right at all because um, I have this wonderful partner, you know, and I, I could say, I guess, that the, the practice I've done has helped me, I think, to be, you know, a more appreciative partner more and more and more over the years. And that just keeps growing. How my my love for her and my appreciation for her never never stops growing, or hasn't yet. It seems to get better and better and better. So I'd like to offer that for people who are having 
I mean, we've had our troubles, uh, Claire and I, for sure. But man, it, it just grows and grows and grows in beauty and depth for us. And I, I, think, I suspect that the fact that I've got this practice, you know, otherwise I think I'd be, you know, I think I can say I'd be more, more, more like I used to be, you know, more of a mess. And instead, I, uh, you know, I can be a mess still, but not to the old extent. And I'm much more open to, you know, just boundless gratitude for, for her and for our boys and other people in, in my life. What, what were the qualities early in, in your interactions with her that gave you some insight that you would be a, a, a great partner and supporter of your own development? She was um, grounded in a way that I wasn't. She was measured and sort of steady. You know, I was more of this sort of passionate, you know, traveling poet, writer, dude, you know, and he was this really grounded person who was sort of deep, quiet, and beautiful, and patient, and wow, you know. <laughs> could, I get, could I get close to that, you know? Right. It's, uh, I, I, it's hard to emphasize enough how powerful, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, I'd say it is a convention that co-founders do better than solo founders. And, and I think for many human dynamic reasons, organizational dynamic reasons, uh, you know, you're going on a, a long, arduous journey. It's, it's helpful um, to have, to have, people bonded together. And so I imagine the same is certainly true in my experience for creators and, and their spouses, um, being such, such, uh, resources of support that it's, I, I should do an episode just with spouses because I know that I've truly put my, my wife Cheney through the, through the paces of, of supporting all of the minor to large breakdowns to, uh, to all of the, inspiring moments, intimidating moments. It's, it is, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. That's, that's a beautiful way to, to end the episode. Well, where can people find out more about you, Henry? And we mentioned mountaincloud.org. Yeah. You know, that really, that is, that is basically the best spot, um, where, yeah, you can, you can, anybody interested can sort of connect with what we're doing. And they can always get an email to me from Mountain Cloud as well, if anybody wants to do that. Well, man, James, thanks so much again. What Thank a- you, Henry. Thank you for the generosity of time. Uh, this has been, it's been a blessing to talk to you. Well, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for what you're doing with this very frank kind of podcast. It's such a valuable thing. Well, only valuable is so much as, uh, as the insight the guests bring. So thank you, Henry. And, um, I look forward to chatting with you again. Okay, beautiful. Thank you again. Enjoy the day in the snow in New Mexico. <laughs> yeah, and enjoy LA. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review or bad. We love hearing from people that, that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us 
on Twitter at go below the line, as well as see in our Twitter bio, our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.